think of it almost like a forest fire where you've gone through a particular area, you know, and you've completely denuded the epithelium. Is it something about the diet? Is it about the microbes that you're being exposed to? If you have the same genetics, what you have is a different environment. How is that environment actually playing a role in the disease? I'm Jane Grogan and I'm a scientist, specifically an immunologist, so someone who studies how the immune system works. One key part of my job as a scientist is to communicate ideas with other scientists and also with people outside of the field. One of the cool things is this podcast allows me to do both. For the past two seasons, I've had the privilege to speak to some of the brightest minds in research, but I'm not done yet. This season, I'm going back into the bar to see what my colleagues are doing to research some of the most complex diseases and see what they're up to. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. What do you think causes the inflammation in inflammatory bowel disease? Hmm, what do I think causes the inflammation in irritable bowel disease? Um, I'm guessing it's kind of like an allergic reaction to something you've consumed. Oh dear. It's too complicated. <laughs> I would say it has to do with your, your gut, what's happening in your gut as well. The interplay of dysregulation of your own um, gut bacteria with your ability of your uh, own barrier to respond to it. That will involve a lot, right? Like, you know, you, you might have, you might get some infection, you know, fighting infection, it might cause some inflammation or you, you might have some immune, you know, your immune system, if it's, you know, not working right, it also causes inflammation. Welcome back. We had a really interesting discussion with Alison Bird last episode on the microbiome. So the bacteria that sits in us and on us, um, on our gut and our skin. This week, we'd like to go into a deeper dive on the gut and focus our attention on a particularly aggressive autoimmune disease called inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD for short. Simply put, this is an inflammation in the gut, and that's not the stomach, but rather the small and large intestine. And with me today to discuss this is an expert in the area, Mary Keir. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Jane. So let's just kind of dive right into it. The gut, inflammatory bowel disease. And inflammatory bowel disease is really not just one thing, right? It, it, no. It's a complex mix of different types of, you know, aberrant immune responses. Where does IBD happen? Yeah, and so that's a key part of the two different kinds of IBD. So IBD is, is broken into two main groups, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Crohn's disease can happen anywhere along the GI tract. So most of the patients, um, probably about 60% of them, will have inflammation around that ileal cecal valve, so just where the small intestine meets the large intestine and that valve that separates the two. Um, other patients will have colonic disease, some patients will, will have disease in the small bowel, but that's a pretty small group, that's about 5% of the patients. Um, that inflammation also can be very patchy. So you'll have completely normal mucosa and it can be next to mucosa where you really have a lot of inflammation and, and um, ulcers. Ulcerative colitis just affects the large bowel. So that's your colon. That's the end part where you have a lot of the bacteria. And typically it goes from the rectum up. So most patients have inflammation in the rectum, and then some patients will have inflammation throughout the whole colon, but there's really kind of a range. And typically that's a continuous inflammation, so all of the mucosa will be involved, and then there'll be a nice line. It's um, the way that 
gastroenterologists typically described, it's like almost a line of demarcation. You have inflamed region, and then next to it, you'll have completely normal mucosa. But then you won't have that patchy inflammation that you'll have with Crohn's disease, where you'll have areas that are right next to each other um, that aren't in sequence. So mucosa lines the, the intestine as well, right? Yeah. And it acts as a natural barrier between the food the bacteria and yeah. ourselves. So what's going on during an IBD inflammatory response? Perhaps you could help us visualize this. What they'll typically do when they're looking at these patients and diagnosing these patients is they'll actually take a scope. And that scope has, is fitted with a little camera and then it also has the ability to take little tissue biopsies. It's one of the things about inflammatory bowel disease that's different from a lot of the other autoimmune diseases um, that you're able to really take tissue samples of the areas where you have inflammation. So you can actually look at within these patients how involved, you know, how much epithelium have they lost? Do they have a lot of neutrophils? Because typically neutrophils, which are like these warriors of the immune system, they'll get sent in, they really are there to, you know, degranulate and then die. Um, They're like the first wave of the immune response, aggressive, fast and quick. Right, exactly. Are there a lot of neutrophils present? Are there T-cells or other lymphocytes that we would typically think of as being um, less aggressive, but maybe more of a long-term pattern, where you'd actually get these chronic changes happening um, within uh, the, the, the lining of your gut. Um, so when I talk about mucosa, what I'm really talking about is that epithelium, that barrier between what would be just purely us, purely host, and the bacteria that it's always in contact and really trying to um, work with because, I mean, this is an essential part of how we digest food, how we absorb nutrients, um, but also not becoming activated by that, by that bacteria because that is something that traditionally we expect our immune system to do. We expect it to respond to bacteria. Jane, is IBD the same as irritable bowel syndrome? Yeah, there can be a lot of confusion around this, but but no, they're, they're different diseases. A lot of people, I think 10 to 20% of the population, have irritable bowel syndrome. And this is a kind of general intestinal disorder that causes pain in the belly, lots of gas, diarrhea, and constipation. IBD, or inflammatory bowel disease, is much more complicated and very inflammatory, and it's located to specific sites in the intestine driven by very specific disease pathogenesis, of which we don't fully understand. What are the triggers for inflammatory bowel disease? It's a chronic infection, and because it's an autoimmune disease, I always think and um, there's some genetic component as well. Yeah, and I don't know if I would call it an infection, but I think that's something that the field has really struggled with. So if you go back and if you read the old literature, people would want to know, is this a particular bacteria? Is this something that's infectious in the way that we think about viral infection? Or, you know, would you have a particular microbe that can induce damage and then that's something that's transmissible transmissible to somebody else. So the trigger could be an infectious trigger or the chronicity can also be infectious. Yeah, and I think that's something we don't totally understand. Is it some, you know, we all get little infections in our gut that we're able to fight off. This is something where we're exposed constantly to a number of different microbes. is it something where you had a small infection and then that led to this larger immune response because it was triggered um, in a way that typically you would expect to have a tolerant behavior of the immune system, but for whatever reason, you didn't and you actually have, then you bring in additional immune cells and things like neutrophils that would then cause damage and then that would create a vicious cycle. And I think that that is something that the field is interested in, but is very, very hard to prove. Um, We do see, you know, for 
I think some of the most interesting data is almost the epidemiology data, where you have typically pretty low level, um, pretty low levels of inflammatory bowel disease in places that are in the developing world. But when those populations then move to the developed world, the rates just go kind of at the level that you would typically see of the, of the populations that have lived in the developed world for a long period of time. So then that starts to, that brings up the question of, is it something about the diet? Is it about the microbes that you're being exposed to? Do you have the same genetics? What you have is a different environment. How is that environment actually playing a role? in the disease. But it's really hard to dissect these things, I think, as scientists and, and try to understand what is the root cause, because you can't really do the experiment. Jane, what does she mean when she's saying here that you can't do the experiment as scientists? As scientists, we often try and take a hypothesis-driven approach. And one way to um, set up experimental systems is to keep everything consistent or constant and change one variable at a time. And so when you start to get to these complex diseases where you're moving patients from one place, you know, people moving from one place to the next, eating different foods, you'd really have to isolate these different groups and, and vary only one thing. I know that becomes really hard to do. And so, you know, one of the challenges for us as scientists in the community is how we can take advantage of large data and other ways of, of asking questions and, and, and getting the information back out to help us understand disease. Maybe we can break it down. What do we understand first about the genetic component that may be driving disease? Right, and we understand quite a lot. There's been a lot of large studies looking at you know, what genes contribute. And the genes really fall into the immune cell genes. So it looks like there's a big role for the immune system. Um, there's also a role for, we think, epithelial cells. So you see um, genes that are involved in epithelial cell um, ion channels, things like this, epithelial cell um, ability to function within their environment. Um, and then there's also an interesting sort of bacterial response. So some of the Crohn's disease genes, for example, also overlap with genes that have been involved in, in leprosy. So that's intracellular bacteria, these kinds of things where you'd actually be interacting um, between the host and a microbe. So that really suggests too that there's some interaction between an infectious response Right. And the disease. Yeah, I think that the thing that I struggle with, is it an infection or is it just a normal response? Is it an aberrant response to something that just is a normal stimuli within the gut, um, where you have so many gut microbes and you are constantly um, exposed to them? The immune system, you know, as we know, we think of it as something that should respond under the right conditions. And under these conditions, typically you want it to only respond if there's something like truly infectious. How do you differentiate between these two? And it's possible, you know, this is sort of telling us that you don't always get it right. I think, um, you know, understanding the pathogenesis or the drivers of disease for any autoimmune disease is very difficult, right? right. Because the, the result you read out is this chronic inflammation that's largely maintained or driven by an adaptive immune response, like T cells. Um, um, but we don't know what the trigger is, and each person has a different set point, right. and that set point can be different based on genetics, environment, infectious status, diet, all kinds of things. Um, so with that level of complexity and with a desire to understand the disease and then, you know, treat patients, um, how are you and your colleagues trying to tease apart or understand what's driving disease? And so that's one of the fantastic things about actually doing clinical studies, where we're trying to understand, typically, you know, taking a very directed approach where we'll 
block a particular cytokine, um, which is how cells communicate with each other and say, okay, if we block this particular communication between cells, do we still get disease? Um, and that's something that as you, you know, work your way through a bunch of different hypotheses, you can start better understanding, okay, we blocked this one and that had an effect, but then we um, triggered this pathway and that didn't have an effect. That gives you a better idea of where you're actually going. I mean, we know that one of the very common treatments for um IBD uh, uh, anti-TNF, so things yeah. that block a particular cytokine called TNF that have been around for decades yes. now. Um, and what's fascinating is that that doesn't, is not successful in all patients. So right. that it suggests that other pathways are driving the disease. That's something that the field really has tried to sink its teeth into in terms of, is it just one pathway in those patients, um, or is it possible that it's actually multiple pathways? The thing that we're thinking about now is potential for combinations. Um, do you need to address both the the immune response, which is typically, which is what anti-TNF will do, um, and then do you also need to address the barrier function? Um, do you need to address the microbial dysbiosis? If we think about these as being the sort of three axes of uh, that are at play in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, is it the combination of these three things that you might need to put into, um, into action in a patient, at least for a short period of time, to try to get them so that they can heal themselves and then reestablish normalcy within their gut? It's interesting to think about that. An anti-TNF will hit the immune part of the response. Um, there's the repair, the actual repair of the wound that's in the gut. Right. So the barrier repair, or the, you know, fixing the hole in the epithelial barrier. Right. And then um, it's the remodeling to kind of turn an inflamed tissue back to something that's normal. You know, if you think about um, diabetes, type 1 diabetes, for example, how do you, during a chronic infection, stop the immune response and then repair the, you know, beta islet cells that are yeah. there? And I think of it almost like a forest fire where you've gone through a particular area, you know, and you've completely denuded the epithelium. Like, if you look at what the tissue looks like in these patients, they will have lost more or less all of their epithelial cells. You have this really inflammatory response because you've lost that barrier. How do you get them back to a place where they can heal that barrier and then start reestablishing that normal immune response that you would expect to have in the gut where you, you're not overly responsive to all the bacteria that you have present there. You know, you've nicely outlined the problems with um, and the challenges of understanding the disease, but, but how are you using science to try and address right. this? Right. And I mean, I think one of the things that um, we're very interested in using is, is the, the concept of biomarkers. And I know you've talked about biomarkers before, um, in order to understand patient heterogeneity. Um, and so... A lot of patients won't respond to therapies. How do we understand what may be going wrong in individual patients to try to address it so that we can get better efficacy? And that's something that we really scientifically have been approaching primarily by looking at clinical data because this is a disease where um, your, our ability to model it in is very limited. Jane, what's difficult about modeling this disease? You know, IBD, like other inflammatory diseases, is very complex and the field is still trying to work out the chicken and egg, so to speak. What's causing what and what are the drivers? And until we understand that, it's very hard to know what experimental system to set up. Do you set up attack of the gut epithelium first and then you layer in the immune system and then you layer in the bacteria or do you switch it around and do the bacteria first? So I think as we generate more data and more clinical data, we'll start to be able to put these models together. I think this is an example where um, 
um, learning from the clinic and bringing back the unknowns from clinical trial to ask those questions back in the research lab are, right. are, are really important. Right. And so the approach that we've taken in my lab um, is to really focus in on the different aspects that we've talked about. So the immune system, I think that's something that we've done a lot with over the years and even in collaboration with you, um, really trying to look at what cells are there, what they might be capable of making, what they're expressing. Um, and so that part, you know, as someone who trains as an immunologist, is, has been a lot of fun. But then also addressing the epithelium and the, abil the ability of the epithelium to re Reheal after these kinds of insults is something that we've taken on by using um, epithelial organoids. Jane, what's an epithelial organoid? Well, we just talked about how difficult it is to model this disease. Mary's described the epithelial cells uh, layer in the gut too, made up of multiple cells, and they uh, they just don't lie flat. They form these crypts. So there's mountains and hills, or mountains and valleys, and there are stem cells within those crypts that then seed. Um, the epithelial, as the epithelial layers are renewing. So how do we model that, right? If we just take out epithelial cells and grow them in a dish, they'll grow flat. And so whatever we scientific question we ask of them won't really be replicating what that epithelial looks like in the gut. So these organoids are ways of trying to grow these epithelial cells so they've got the mountains and peaks and all the right cells in them so they look more like what's happening inside the gut of a person. And then we can kind of use that as a surrogate to probe biology. The gut is lined with epithelia, right? And it's not just this flat barrier. And I think that that represents what you want it to do. So in the small intestine, um, the barrier is not just a flat barrier, like you said. It actually has these little fingers, protrusions that stick up, and it has little fingers that go in. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You're trying to absorb nutrients. You want the maximum amount of surface area. That's an easy way to get more surface area. So of course, you know, the, these ribbons or fingers of epithelial cells sticking out and in that provide a vast surface area mm -hmm. end up forming a kind of crypt. Right, and within the crypt, you can get three different cell types that um, are very important. Um, Panna cells, which are able to make antimicrobial peptides, goblet cells, which are able to make mucus, which then gets secreted and form a nice barrier. So this is the, like a physical barrier. Yeah, and it can be really quite thick, especially in the in the colon where it's really protecting against all those bacteria that are there. And then the stem cells, which are able to give rise to these different cell types. Um, and those stem cells um, are really critical in terms of if you lose them, you lose your ability to make these other cell types that are able to go forward and really form this lining of the gut. And presumably then you're unable to repair the gut yeah. without these cells. Yeah. And so um, understanding that niche that they live in um, is really critical and understanding their ability to respond to, you know, wounding and respond to um, stimuli that they may be getting from the bacteria is also really critical. How do you actually study that? About 10 years ago, um, there was a... There was a group um, in the Netherlands who really identified the conditions that you'd need to take stem cells. So we typically take primary stem cells from biopsies that are taken from healthy volunteers. Um, from the gut. From the gut. Um, and then we're able to grow them in vitro using these conditions that this group of scientists worked out. And that gives us the ability to then look at those cells, look at the, how they respond to different stimuli, ask what sort of um, genes they're they're expressing, see how much mucus they make, all these different things that we can um, then try to superimpose back upon 
are biopsies that we're able to take from the intestines of patients with IBD to ask what are the differences? How can we understand what may have gone wrong here in this inflammatory bowel disease sample um, by really understanding the cell types that are present in this normal, healthy, you know, growing in the dish that we can manipulate, um, but then to really try to make that connection between the two. And it, it's, it's very cool that you can take these cells from patients in a fairly non-invasive way and then grow them in a dish and probe them to see how um, they're impaired in their wound healing capability, I guess, or not. Right, and I think one of the things that we're interested in is are there factors that may lead to differentiation of these cells or to um, expansion of the stem cells. So if we want to heal, one of the things we may want to do is really protect that stem cell niche and induce them to differentiate. It's possible that you could use different soluble factors that may be made by us to, to see whether or not you can actually increase the rate of proliferation of these stem cells um, in order to heal that wound that may be present in these IBD patients. Which makes the idea of combination treatment very exciting potentially, right? Because you could inhibit certain pathways and then add certain pathways back to help repair. Yeah, so going back to this concept of, you know, the microbial dysbiosis, the epithelial dysfunction, and then the immune cell, um, the immune response being dysregulated in these patients. It, it gives us the potential where we're not just hitting the immune response over and over again, but that we might actually be able to add in different aspects to really try to treat disease. And I think people have the same um, sort of interest in whether or not we can treat microbial dysbiosis. Is this something that we can address in these patients um, as part of their disease that we may be able to add on to other ways that we're intervening? I have to say this is very cool. It's just really exciting to see how the field is moving, um, I hate to say it, but beyond the immune system, <laughs> which is my favourite beast, um, uh, to looking at, you know, um, other things that are really important in driving disease are actually things that we can target, like, you know, stem cells in the gut. I think the immune system is really important. I mean, we're both immunologists, but, but we have been at this limit, and we want to get beyond that. And one of the, th one of the ways we think we may be, may be able to get beyond that is by combining different aspects of the disease that we're hitting. So it may not just be the immune response, although we think that's really important. It may also be we need to regrow the epithelium. We need to restore the bacterial, um, the normal bacterial uh, microenvironments that, that exist within the gut. So 25 years from now, I know. where are we going to be? Yeah. <laughs> where will the field be? Right, and that's something that I think we've been trying to think about. Um, combinations are one definite possibility, but I, one thing I think we really want to do is get ahead of this disease. This is a disease that is a chronic disease, um, is very debilitating for people who have it. Um, and you know, it's it's something that people don't necessarily want to talk about. And so to try to get ahead of the disease to say this is somebody who is very likely to have these problems and then to monitor them so that you can treat them before they actually have um, really active inflammatory attacks would be helpful. Um, typically what the, the treatment for inflammatory bowel disease has been, especially for Crohn's disease, is to go in and take out parts of the bowel. Um, as you do that, you're left with shorter and shorter amounts of small bowel, small, small intestine or large intestine. Um, and for these patients, that can be really tough in the long run, as you can imagine. Um, that's something that I think we'd want to get ahead of, that before they even start to have really active disease, we'd be able to identify patients or identify people we'd want to watch. Um, and that's something that I think the field is interested in, in terms of just changing the whole course of the disease. We're already doing it with um, being able to, to treat with anti-TNFs, so 
we already have data that show that that can change the course of disease. Um, but to get even further ahead to say, as soon as you present, you know, we're going to try to treat these underlying causes rather than just manage through steroids or through anti-inflammatories that aren't very specific to really get at the root cause. But that's, again, where biomarkers might be important. How do we understand which, which of the three areas that we think potentially lead to dysfunction are actually dysfunctional and then, and then guide the treatment appropriately? Jane, let me interrupt and ask a general biomarker question. How early is early in terms of a biomarker that's effective for a disease like this? I think that's the kind of holy grail, right, for biomarkers, is being able to identify or detect the disease early on. And the further along these diseases go, the more inflammatory and disruptive they are. So we can get them earlier, that's better, it's always better. And if we can get them in an early stage and detect them in an early stage, we can stop this whole inflammation cycle that just really takes over the gut and really hopefully keep that gut intact rather than having to resect it. Do you think we'll truly get to a personalised approach for these complex autoimmune diseases? Um, I think that is the goal, and in 25 years, I really hope that we're getting closer to it. IBD, I think, has the advantage, you know, we are able to, to take tissue from the organs that are infected, affected. that's something we don't have in other um, areas. We are able to manage fairly non-invasively, so even though, you know, scoping is, is the way that we typically are able to look at what's going on in the gut, you can get other samples that tell you a lot about what may be going on in the gut. Um, so that is really the goal. For 25 years from now, yeah, we'd like to be able to really, you know, have somebody come in and say you have a high likelihood of, of this happening and we think these are the things that go wrong and then, and then treat from there. One of the intriguing things about IBD, it's one of the first diseases we've been able to tease apart genetically. Yes. And actually use genetics of um, different populations of people around the world to come up with kind of gene sets that really have point inflammation as being underlying to disease pathogenesis. Yeah, and I think um, that was a huge moment for this particular field. Um, if you go back and you read the literature from, from 15 years ago, before the genetic studies had been published, it was really thought of as being purely a, a, a dysfunction of the immune system. Um, and I think once those genetic studies came out, the field really had to say, oh, this is, this is potentially, you know, how the immune system's interacting with bacteria, how the epithelial barrier is function, functioning. And it really led to a shift in how people thought about the pathobiology, which I think was critical in terms of taking us beyond just targeting the immune system. Um, and I think that that's the thing about genetic studies. It's, it's essentially, in terms of as a scientist, it's unbiased. The experiment's kind of been done, and then you go and you look in these populations and you ask, what are the genes that are critical for this particular disease? Um, and that can be really informative. Um, there clearly is a role for the immune, for the immune system. I don't want to like, downplay that. Um, but you know, I think it really did change how the field thought about what was going on with yeah, these by, patients. By identifying not just immune genes, but also sets of genes, but also um, Wound healing genes, antimicrobial genes. Yeah, and response to bacterial, um, you know, peptides and, and different things that bacteria carry. Yeah, I think that that was really a key moment for this field. The way we're talking about this is kind of the three arms of, of complexity. There's the immune system, what the host is doing behind the epithelial barrier. Mm -hmm. There's the epithelial barrier and... Um, issues going on with its ability to control bacterial infections or heal itself after wound. 
and then the bacteria. So just bringing this back to the microbiome, right? What is, how do you think um, about the cause and effect? Is it the microbiome that's starting this, or is this a IBD a reaction to that? And what if you just change the microbiome? Yeah. What if you just remove the bacteria and repopulate it? And or? people are trying. I mean, I think that's something about the microbiome field that I really have to applaud them for. They're really willing to like get in there and do these experiments. And so um, the way that that the studies are being done currently in terms of changing the microbiome are by fecal transplant, which is essentially just a very brute force kind of approach. You take the stool from one person and you give it to another person. Um, and that's something that they are doing. Um, it's been done a lot in various different diseases in IBD. Um, there's been a couple of studies, and I think that we've all been very curious, will this actually be efficacious? Um, we do see some efficacy, which sort of then says, well, maybe there is a role for just switching out the microbiome and then repopulating with something that would be considered healthy. But we learned from Alison that that doesn't really work. At the end, a patient's gut ends up repopulated with the bacteria it had before. In ulcerative colitis, there is a nice study where they gave the maximum amount possible. They like literally sent them home in, in their freezer and they would give themselves enemas three times a week. So this is like the maximum amount that you can get in. With, with foreign microbiome? With a donor, like mm -hmm. a healthy donor. Um, and um, they found that about 20% efficacy in terms of controlling their disease. And that was at the end of the study, so it's 10 weeks in. They found that they actually had efficacy when they looked by a scope. Um, and so I think that's something that, if that's the maximum amount of efficacy we can get, that again plays into this thing where there may be some patients where the inflammatory component isn't quite as bad. Maybe you can get these bacteria to shift enough that it'll have an effect. But I think in general, um, the the field the field does like is intrigued by the idea of could you shift the microbiome and actually have an effect. But I think that Allison is right. If you have ongoing inflammation, your ability to shift the bacteria that are living in that inflammatory state is probably very low. You probably need to have all of these things kind of coming together at once. If you were speaking to students today mm -hmm. about what they should be interested in or what, so that you know, they can be solving some of these problems yeah. you know, a few years out from now, what? Yeah, and it's always, it's always, it's fun to, when I get to speak to students, but um, I think that in general, that is what I try to tell them, that there's increasing complexity and our ability to, but it, we're scientists, right? It's also really key that we're posing hypotheses. So then taking responsibility for these large data sets and asking specific questions within them, not just saying I'm going to look at the big data and see if an answer falls out, but to say, you know, I know this particular gene is involved in this disease, and I think that might have a, have a role in the way the bacteria are actually responded to. So can I then look at the bacteria that are present in patients that do and don't have this genetic risk allele and see whether or not that has an impact on outcome? So we're still asking really clean, crisp questions, like we would back in the days when we were in the lab without these big data sets. I think science still needs a very clear hypothesis-driven approach. So speaking of students, did you always want to be a scientist? Ah, uh, yes. Um, so for me, one of the big reasons I wanted to be a scientist um, was, you know, I come from a small town in Oregon. There's no real reason that 
you know, a scientific career was in my future. But one of the things that I was really interested in growing up was the emergence of the HIV epidemic and how much that changed everything. As a kid, you know, growing up in like the 80s and the 90s, I was really interested in culture and it had this huge effect on culture. And from there, it wasn't a small step to really seeing that there was this virus that was emerging that nobody understood. And I think that that for me as a student was a key revelation. There are things out there that we don't understand that have a huge effect on everything around us that are essentially scientific questions. How is this virus replicating? How is it causing disease? And that was really what drew me into science. So as an undergrad, I then did research and got hooked. But once I started at UCSF as a student, I was drawn into a lab where we worked on HIV and we really actually had um, people volunteering um, that were HIV positive that were so interested in what we were doing, they would work in the lab next to us. It was, it was actually a great learning experience because it gave you this um, feeling that you have this big responsibility, you know, as you're generating these clinical data sets um, next to somebody who has a disease that you're interested in understanding, um, that you have this responsibility to really do the best experiments you possibly can and to take everything very seriously. So I think that's something that I kind of took forward. And then working on these sort of big clinical data sets has been um, something where I've tried to keep that in mind, where it's like, when you look at them, these are people with a disease and most of them you know, aren't responding to therapy. So how do we try to come up with things that will actually address their disease and get them into a place where they can live normal, healthy lives? I think that's actually one of the really fun things about being a researcher. You yeah. start somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually started with infectious disease too, yeah, right? Yeah, shit. <laughs> worm infections. And how, how we know that the... Um, Infections feed, you know. Right. Yes. We have Follow an immune system that responds to a pathogen, and then, you know, I ended up following the immune system, which yeah. I know you did as well. And um, kind of beautifully, you've dovetailed back into this niche area, if I could use that word, when talking about the gut, um, where you've got the interface of the immune system and then infections again, you right. know, the microbiome. Right. And how you're actually dealing with this outside stimuli, you know, whether or not it's an in infection as we typically would have thought of it where it's something that, that the body is actually trying to expel or if it's just sort of like a normal um, interaction um, that's being taken in an abnormal way. Um, but yeah, I think that there, th th this idea where you follow the pathogen because you'll learn a lot about the immune system and then potentially you can take that around and really try to um, manipulate what's going on and what's at the basis of this, of a disease, I think is something that is a, is a really... It's a robust approach and I think it's um, something that has been interesting to me for a long time. Well, I wish you nothing but good luck moving forward with the rest of your research and thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you, Jane. This has been so great. Thanks, Barry. So we've taken a long, hard look at the gut these past two episodes. It's amazing to see how much work is going on to understand this very complex system and interplay between bacteria, the gut and the immune system. In the next episode, we're heading north, right into the eye. We'll be asking the question of what's the root behind one of the leading causes of blindness. It's going to be a great episode, so stay tuned. And in the meantime, keep telling your science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, download the podcast from your favourite podcast app, and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and now for me, it's back to the lab. <laughs>